substance use disorder, addiction, overdose, doesn't really care who you are, where you come from, what you look like. It really can affect everyone. The opioid crisis has been a front and center public health challenge for decades. With the last few years being some of the most severe when you look at the data around drug overdose deaths. From 2019 to 2020, opioid-related deaths increased by 38%, and synthetic opioid-related deaths increased by 56%. Even before 2019, the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, recognized the need to research and understand driving factors behind opioid misuse and addiction. In 2018, the Institutes announced the launch of the HEAL initiative, HEAL standing for Helping to End Addiction Long-Term. Since its launch, the initiative has evolved into a cross-NIH effort with 42 different programs and over $2 billion invested to date on new opioid use disorder and overdose therapies, prevention strategies, and more. We're here today to talk about a key piece of the initiative called the Healing Community Study, a bold effort to test the integration of prevention, overdose treatment, and other strategies in select communities hard hit by the opioid crisis. Through this integration, the study aims to reduce opioid-related deaths by 40% over the course of three years. Welcome to Empathy Affects, Forest Marsh Media's podcast that explores the human side of government. I'm Melissa Harris, and I have a special two-part episode for you that'll take you through the evolution of the opioid crisis and how the Healing Community Study is applying an empathic, intersectional approach to the crisis. Two leaders behind the study, National Institute on Drug Abuse Healing Community Study Director, Dr. Radana Chandler, and Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration Center for Substance Abuse Treatment, Dr. Ingvild Olson, will walk us through some of the most pressing challenges and effective strategies for addressing the opioid crisis. In today's part one, we'll hear from our distinguished guests about the foundation of the Healing Community Study and how the opioid crisis became as severe as it is today, in part two, we'll learn about where the study is now and how we can address the crisis together. As we welcome our guests, I just want to note that Dr. Chandler had to join us on the phone. So let's kick off part one. Doctors Chandler and Olson, thank you so much for joining us on Empathy Effect today. I'm really excited to have you two here. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. All right. Well, let's just jump right in. I want to start by getting our listeners some context about the Healing Community Study, which you two are very involved with. How did NIDA and SAMHSA come together to launch this study, and what are its goals? So NIDA and SAMHSA came together to launch the Healing Community Study before Dr. Olson was involved. We actually started talking about this in 2018, and the study launched in 2019. And then Dr. Olson joined us a few years into the study. We came together around a knowledge that there was an unacceptably high rate of people dying of overdoses and that we had a whole toolkit of evidence-based practices that weren't being taken to scale within communities. And we needed a research-based way to determine how to go about taking those evidence-based practices to scale. We'd invested a lot of money at NIDA in being able to study those practices, 
SAMHSA had invested a lot of time and effort into trying to get them implemented and make them widely available, and yet there was still this big gap between need and availability. And so we decided to come together to jointly sponsor this large research endeavor, which is the largest community-based research endeavor in addiction science that we've, we've ever launched. And we had a very ambitious goal of reducing opioid-related overdose fatalities by 40% and also increasing access and utilization of evidence-based practices around naloxone, um, medication for opioid use disorder, and safer prescribing. And I think at the time, you know, SAMHSA for a long time really has been supportive of and funding implementation of some of the evidence-based practices that Dr. Chamber mentioned, including medications for opioid use disorder, you know, buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone, naloxone is something that, you know, states have been and communities have been distributing for quite some time. But we know that the uptake really has not been optimal, particularly in the face of a rapidly evolving overdose crisis, and especially as heroin and then fentanyl really was taking off in communities. And so being part of a study that really is an implementation science-based study so that we can understand how to to really bring these evidence-based practices to scale, as Dr. Chandler mentioned, that is incredibly important and a, and a huge need, I think, to really understand how, I think, not only at the, you know, we fund states, we fund also some community-based organizations, but how do communities really do this? How do you give that buy-in? What does that look like? Who needs to be at the table? so that we can have that public health impact that we know that we really need to have. So for SAMHSA, this is kind of a no-brainer. I think it's important here to chat about the roles that each of your agencies plays. NIDA is you know, part of the NIH, so research is at its core, and SAMHSA is about implementing effective guidance and resources. So what role do each of your agencies play in the study? So in common, we both provide funding for the study, and in common, we both provide scientific direction. Dr. Olson and I both serve as scientific advisors on the Healing Community Study, so we both are involved in the development and the direction of the science itself. And, you know, as you mentioned, Melissa, TAMSA has, you know, had a role for a long time in terms of, you know, dissemination of evidence-based practices, guidance, and, you know, for this study in particular, really then focusing on, as Dr. Taylor mentioned, kind of taking the science um, and working with NIDA to bring it to scale and taking those lessons that we are learning from the Healing Community Study and thinking through how we can disseminate those. Part of the study really is also because it is an implementation science-based study, is then also understanding and taking all of those lessons learned, all of those materials that have been developed by the 67 communities that you were talking about uh, in terms of all the materials related to dissemination campaigns, communication campaigns. A big part of the study is on, you know, really getting awareness out there and and not only the awareness, but the uptake of these various different uh, evidence-based practices, naloxone, um, the medications for obese disorder, sick prescribing, um, and so there are thousands and thousands, as Redonna often likes to, to to also say that 
you know, all these materials that, that these community coalitions have developed and taking that, packaging it in ways that we can then really spread to other communities, to other coalitions and to other groups that that really are for a long time been trying to to figure out and, and doing a lot of great work. Right. And across the communities you've chosen, they're in four states, Kentucky, Ohio, New York, and Massachusetts. I know that when I was in school back in Ohio, the opioid crisis was really something front and center in a lot of the communities around me. Fentanyl was rising as a word that was just like I was hearing for the first time. But I'm just curious from the seats you're in, why did you choose to pick these four states and what challenges do each of them face with opioids and overdose-related deaths? As with all funding at NIH, it's a competitive process. And so we put out a request for proposals, and different research organizations partnered with different communities and submitted applications. So we had a very robust response. We had a lot of applications. A lot of communities wanted to be participating in the healing community study. And it went through a scientific review process where a group of external scientific experts looked at the applications and narrowed them down to a smaller pool. And then we actually went out and did site visits. So we went to visit with each of the smaller pool of applicants to see and speak with their state partners, with some of their communities, with their investigators, to really be able to look at and assess the quality of their ability not only to conduct the research, but also to be able to partner with their state governments, because that was going to be really critical We understood from being able to collect the data we wanted to collect, but also just being able to support the work that partnering with the state government would be critical and the relationship within the communities. And there were certain criteria that the applicants had to meet too, right? So to to apply, you had to have a certain rate of overdose fatalities occurring So you had to show that these communities that were coming together as a part of your application were highly impacted. We also wanted to look at rural and urban communities. So you had to come in with a split between your rural and urban communities because we know that solutions that work in urban areas may not work in rural areas and vice versa. And then we required them also to demonstrate that they could partner with three different venues across their communities. They had to be able to partner with behavioral health, healthcare, and the justice system at a minimum um, to be able to develop a strategy to integrate and deliver these evidence-based practices. So people put together an application based on the criteria we set forward, and then it went through a review process. And these particular states were the states that rose to the very top, and they are some of the most highly impacted states in our country. In terms of unique challenges, well, we started the study, and then the COVID pandemic came along, and that was something no one anticipated. And New York and Massachusetts were hit very early and very hard. Um, Many of our communities um, in those two states were hit with COVID. And then Kentucky and Ohio later, and in different ways, 
But, you know, the biggest thing that they all four have faced is the evolving drug market. Mm -hmm. The drug market has changed so that, I mean, some people call it a poison control issue at this point because all of the drugs that are being purchased on the street or the vast majority of them have things like fentanyl, and now we're seeing the rise in a veterinarian tranquilizer called xylazine that are in the drug supply that are incredibly toxic and that can lead to overdose and overdose fatalities. I would love to chat with both of you a bit about your own backgrounds because you are two fascinating people who have spent your careers in this field. So Dr. Chandler, before you started with the Healing Community Study, you worked in prevention and epidemiology with NIDA, and you were also at the Department of Justice directing drug treatment programs. You mentioned earlier how with the study for qualifying communities to join, they needed to have this sort of multi-pronged approach with justice and healthcare and behavior systems. But you know, between the work that you've done previously and today, How have you seen the drug use landscape evolve over time? Yeah, so when I began my career and I started working with the Justice Department in terms of opioids specifically, I was mostly providing treatment to African-American men from urban areas that were using heroin. And to be really candid, nobody cared. Nobody really cared about the impact it was having on their communities. Nobody really cared about whether or not they were overdosing and dying. And it was very different than it is today. And the evolution really has occurred. There used to be separate drug supplies, right? Today, the drug supply is so different that everything is adulterated with these other substances. So if you go out and you try to buy stimulants today off the street, there is a 98% likelihood that it's going to contain fentanyl. And, And with growing impact, xylazine, heroin that comes from plants that's agrarian based, that entire market has been completely displaced on the street by fentanyl and synthetic drugs. So you don't have to necessarily grow the drugs that people are using anymore. You can make them with chemicals. And the market is such now that even someone who maybe is thinking they're going to use cocaine can unintentionally be exposed to fentanyl and opioids and overdose and overdose and die because it's in the drug supply. So really, polysubstance use is much more prevalent today. It's not that people weren't using multiple substances early on in my career, but they sort of had what everyone referred to as the drug of choice. And they tried to stick to that drug of choice. And their polysubstance use was their drug of choice combined with alcohol and maybe tobacco with smoking. But their drug of choice wasn't that they were going out on the street and they were buying drugs that they were going to use that contained this unknown cocktail and combination of substances. I'm sure that adds all sorts of new layers to the response landscape. The treatment approaches are much more complicated, as well as overdose reversal. 
Naloxone is fantastic for overdose reversal with an opioid, but with some of these synthetic opioids, they're so much more powerful that multiple doses and higher doses are needed. And with a combination of something like xylazine, which also has depressive properties on the respiratory system, and an opioid like fentanyl, the effectiveness and the impact of something like naloxone in reversing an overdose just becomes much, much more complicated. Even though the drug supply has evolved in a much more deadly and complicated way, have you seen a change in attitude toward how substance use researchers and the public health system view the opioid crisis? The positive thing is that there is much more caring about people who have substance use disorders now than there was when we saw the rise in substance use disorders as a result of the flooding of prescription, the use of prescription drugs. And you started to see people begin to develop substance use issues and opioid use disorder more broadly across the population, then people became more involved, they started to care more, they became more focused on that. Um, and there's been, I think, a greater, greater response at federal and state levels. There's been more funding that's been made available, and that's been really positive. We still have disparities, though. We still have tremendous health disparities, where when we're looking now at our rates of overdose deaths, we're seeing that the rates of deaths among Native American, Alaskan Indians, for example, as well as non-Hispanic Blacks, is much higher and is increasing in ways that it's not among non-Hispanic whites. And so we've still got work that we need to do in that particular way to make sure that everyone that needs these interventions is getting them and that we continue to conduct the science that we need to conduct to be able to deal with this ever-changing drug market. Because near as I can tell, the people on the supply side that are manufacturing and profiting from this are not going to stop the, the work on their end, which means we need to work harder and smarter on our end. Dr. Olson, have you seen an evolution in trends and sentiment toward the opioid crisis too? I know you've worked on the ground at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore and with the state of Maryland with substance use treatment. What trends or stories can you share? You know, I think... Even prior to my moving to Baltimore from Boston, where I trained in general internal medicine, I got really interested in addiction medicine. I think that one of the things that I've been so struck by is that shift in terms of how people are now looking at individuals who have um, a substance use disorder, particularly an opioid use disorder, as a result of some of those changes that we've, that we've seen over the past two decades. You know, I'll just give you an example of one of the the roles that I have had is as a, I was the deputy health officer for a health department in uh, kind of northern part of Maryland. And when I started, I was giving a presentation to a, a group of family members who had, you know, sons and daughters and nieces and nephews who had, many of whom had died of, of an overdose. And I was talking to them about kind of the disease of addiction and how it's a health condition. And they all looked at me like I had three heads and, you know, kind of like, what are you talking about? Four years later, I gave a very similar talk 
to a similar group of, you know, family and family members. And they all, you know, at that point said, oh yeah, no, 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 no. We totally know it's a health condition. We totally understand that. Now tell us how do we support our family members? How do we support them, you know, with care and with love? That that is something that over the course of four years had really changed so dramatically but that hadn't been universal in terms of, you know, when I started in Baltimore, I was also taking care of people who primarily African-American, you know, many men, but also women. And the, the stigma and the discrimination that many of those individuals and just the entire community faced was really pretty profound. And it just, it made me very upset and angry because many of that, the, the stigma and discrimination that people were facing came from my colleagues some of my colleagues. I took care of a woman who um, she came in and she had been injecting in her thumb. And, you know, I sent her, I was very worried because it was red and swollen and painful. And so I sent her to the emergency room. She came back with the thumb wrapped in an ACE bandage and and they had told her, oh, just take some Tylenol or Motrin. You know, when she could have had a really serious joint infection as a result of, you know, her substance use disorder. You know, I think thankfully some of that stigma and some of that discrimination is also changing, but I do think that that is part of what we also really through the human community study are trying to kind of understand what are some of those and SAMHSA in general, the administration in general, really looking at those inequities and, uh, and making sure that we can actually get the evidence-based practices to the people that um, need them, particularly when it comes to naloxone, medications for obese disorder, because we have such great evidence that they really it can be incredibly effective in saving and improving people's lives. What do you think has been a contributing factor to the, you know, you said over four years, the change of public perception of opioid use disorder? Yeah, you know, I think part of it is now that there are other communities, white communities that have been affected that really weren't kind of to the same extent in the past, you know, now it's it's hard to to turn to a family or a community where, you know, someone hasn't been or they haven't, you know, heard of uh, a member of their community that hasn't been impacted in one way or the other. So I do think that, you know, kind of that is, it has been, it's incredibly tragic that it has taken this type of escalating crisis and the loss of so many lives. You know, we lost over 107,000 people to overdose in 2021 alone. You know, it's, it's kind of taken that, but um, but I do think that, that that awareness, that understanding that, you know, kind of this, you know, substance use disorder, addiction, overdose, doesn't really care who you are, where you come from, what you look like. It affects anyone. It can affect anyone. And so, I think that understanding has also changed and and lots more education. You know, I think SAMHSA has for quite some time really supported health practitioner education, not only kind of within the specialty behavioral health workforce, but also then to primary care. You know, one of the things that I've been so fortunate over my career is to really be in settings where we've been able to train younger generations of physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, pharmacists, you know, counselors, social workers, it really does take that multidisciplinary approach, you know, in many ways to help individuals. And 
those experiences, you know, it's been just amazing to watch also now, you know, Addiction Medicine Fellowship blossom. You know, in 2016, Addiction Medicine for the first time became recognized as a medical subspecialty. So the behavioral health kind of workforce, the field of addiction medicine is still relatively new, but I have hope because hearing also and seeing my younger colleagues who don't have perhaps kind of some of those same preconceived notions about um, substance use, about substance use disorder, they really are now stepping up to the plate to make sure that people are being treated with dignity and respect, no matter who they are. The increased attention and support that agencies like SAMHSA and NIDA are giving to the opioid crisis is a great example of how the human side of our federal government can effectively reach across state lines to tackle and help solve national problems. Today, we learned from doctors Chandler and Olson about the new challenges with polysubstance use, the rise of synthetic opioids, how the healing community study got on its feet, and a sense of the intersectional layers to the opioid crisis. Join us for part two on Thursday, June 15th, when we'll return with doctors Chandler and Olson to chat about the study's findings, the impact of new milestones like over-the-counter access to naloxone, and how we can take a multilateral approach to helping those most affected by the opioid crisis. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll follow, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. See you for part two. Empathy Effect is a product of Forrest Marsh. You can reach us at Forrest Marsh Media at ForrestMarsh.com with any feedback, questions, or inquiries. If you want to know more about today's guest, are interested in participating with Forrest Marsh, or becoming part of our community, check out our show notes for more information.